The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. With eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Jacob. Well, good morning again. We are in the uh, midst of a sermon series in Romans 8. We kind of begged the question, what does the resurrected life look like? If Jesus has walked out of the tomb in Easter, what does it mean for you now? What difference does it make? And Romans 8 answers that question very well, actually, as we see the realities of the risen Jesus in our lives. And so uh, at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? After he looks at himself and says, I I do what I don't want to do when I do, I I don't want to do. And so he's just this walking contradiction. And then he says, Romans 8, he says, there's no condemnation. And he goes on to unpack categories where Jesus brings sanity, where there is insanity in his life. And this morning, we're going to look at sanity and suffering, sanity and and suffering here in this kind of excerpt from Romans 8. And I probably don't have to convince you that to be human, to live the life you live with your flesh and your bone, means to suffer. It means to have pain and feel the pings of the world we live in and of the world that you are, of the person that you are. And C.S. Lewis, that very thought, said this in The Problem of Pain. He says, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find you have excluded life itself. To live is to know hardship and rigor and suffering and pain. Aren't you glad you came to church today? In the words of, (laughs) thank you, in the words of REM, everybody hurts. And we all do hurt. And so as we come in this morning as a people who are flesh and bone and who have scars and who have marks and who bear uh, the fact that the world is not as it should be, don't check it at the door. Bring it in because actually there is sanity and suffering. As we talk about suffering, we need to acknowledge kind of two extremes that we shouldn't kind of um, resign ourselves to. One extreme is that of over-spiritualizing suffering, to over-spiritualize suffering where you would say to yourself or to others, God's going to work through this and you just don't know how it's going to be, but, but it's going to be great. And it's going to be good in the end. That is true. And actually it's one of the truest truths out there. 
but the lack of pastoral sensibilities sometimes can make how you say it outweigh what the truth of it is. So we shouldn't over-spiritualize how we suffer. At the same time, we shouldn't over-identify with how we suffer. That is to say, everything you feel, everything you have the knocks of, every scar you bear is all of you. You are enmeshed in your pain and there is no way to understand what hurts, what doesn't hurt, what's good and what's bad. Again, we're looking here at there's sanity in our suffering. So not to over-spiritualize it and not to over-identify with it. What sanity does Jesus bring to you and I because he has walked out of the tomb? He has said, I've come to give life and life to the abundant. He's come to give us the abundant life. And it's easy to think, at least for my own self, that that happens in the high times, in, in the mountain peaks, in the times where everything's going well and grooving together. And yet in the valley, in the hard times and the rigorous, it seems like the abundant life is not there. Jesus, I know you said that, but I'm not seeing it line up in my life. And what I humbly offer you today is actually the abundant life isn't just for the times that it makes it easy to believe it, but it's actually there in most seen well in suffering. To know the abundant life Jesus offers, we see it in a front row seat in suffering. So we'll look at three things this morning as we think through these kind of this gray um, world of suffering. Uh, first, we'll see the ploy of pain. Second, the prescription of pain. And third, the patience in pain. The ploy, uh, the prescription, and the patience. So as we are all a people, who are marked with scars, marked with suffering. And as Roman 8 talks about the spirit that is within us and for us, as a suffering people, let's go to that very same spirit and ask him to be with us this very day. Let's pray. Lord, as we live in the dark before the dawn, would you meet us? as we see you and the hope of you and all that you offer, you love when your people gather. And actually you love it when we just bring the gifts of not uh, all we have and all we've earned, but you love when we bring the, the open hand offerings of our scars and our pain because Jesus, you do much with that. May we learn to worship you by bringing the things that are too much for us to you because that, that actually makes you high and lifted up just as you are. So this very morning, help us, your people, articulate our stories so that we may fit it into your grand story that's leading to glory. Pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. So first, the, the ploy of pain, the ploy of pain. Last week, we heard an uh, excerpt from Romans 8 that Paul is telling the people you have a spirit in you. And the spirit is this, of adoption. That you are a son and a daughter of God. That he has made you his. That's a fancy word. There's a fancy word for that called definitive sanctification. Definitive. Definitive in that it's, it's set. It is clear cut. The gavel has fallen. No one else can say anything about that. Definitive. And then sanctification, uh, being set apart has to do with holiness, that you have been set apart as gods. You are gods. You are holy. Definitive sanctification. That was last week. 
And this week we hear about Paul saying, hey, uh, and actually life is going to be hard. You're going to feel the pain and suffering of this world. And he tells us a lot. We'll talk about it this morning. But you'll suffer. You'll feel pain. You'll know a hard life because it's human, like C.S. Lewis said. And that's progressive sanctification in that you will become more holy. You'll be made more holy over a long lifetime until the casket drops. You will be being made more holy. It's a process, progressive sanctification. Now, if we were to think it's one of the two and not both, if it's just progressive sanctification in that you just keep on having to get be more holy and be made more holy through pain and suffering, the Christian life can feel like a rock tumbler. It's just worn down and you're refined and you're refined and you're refined. And actually the God of that Christian life isn't good. You'll actually probably grow to loathe that God. If it's just progressive, if it's just the rock tumbler, if it's just pain. And if it's just definitive, if it's just you being called, you are gods, you're gods, you're gods. Hey, you're good. You don't, nothing changed, no change will happen. You'll wonder what, Jesus, I'm not feeling like the needle's moving. I know I'm yours. You said that about me, but but where is the where does things begin to look different? And so here, as we have those two points in mind, you are God's, and you are being made more like His Son. There's a tension that is created, and Paul gives us both those things almost um, after each other. Last week you are God's. This week you'll be experience hardship. And this theological primer we just walked through is there for you to know everything that happens in your life is framed by the fact you are God's. Everything, all this progressive sanctification of suffering and pain and rock tumbling is always framed by the fact that you belong to the high king of heaven. And Paul says, because you suffer, zoom out and remember whose you are. As you suffer, zoom out. And that's what he says in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He zooms out and says, inject the eternal into the present. Inject the eternal into the present. And yet the ploy of pain is to do the very opposite. Not to zoom out, not to remember who you are, not to remember all that God has done for you, not to remember that Jesus has walked out of the tomb, The ploy of pain is to say, zoom in. Because if pain can say, zoom in, stay there, and have all of yourself be defined, all that you're going through, it will have its good day in court. There's a a, a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book that's 874 pages uh, thick called A Secular Age. And people have written books to digest this book. And then people have written books to digest the digested version of the books. And so uh, Charles Taylor in that book talks about the imminent frame. In our secular age, as we deal with identity, he says people um, have this, this part of their identity as the, sec- the, the, the imminent frame. And here's what the imminent frame is. It's that you live your life closed off from the thought that there is a, a larger story going on that you make your story small and closed off from there ever being a hope of there's a reason for this. God's up to something here. Imminent, close, compared to transcendent, 
um, above us, something going on. And a digested version of Charles Taylor said this. He said, what does Charles Taylor mean by the eminent frame? And the answer is the buffered identity as opposed to the porous self is a key part of such a mentality. It operates within a disenchanted world where supernatural beings and forces or forces with teleological, which means a design for this world, a teleological goal or intentions are deemed close to impossible. With this imminent frame, there's a loss of a cosmic order. Everything important is this worldly, explicable in its own terms, and fits within the time, space, energy, matter dimension. What is the imminent frame? It says there's no meaning other than what's right before you. I don't think I'm alone when I say, when I experience pain and suffering, I live within the imminent frame. That everything I experience closes itself off to, God, you're up to something here. God, there's a bigger story going on here. And in fact, what... I experience is the food that I eat, and therefore I will be whatever is around me, whatever I'm going through, I'll be at its mercy. And in fact, suffering yanks me into this room, and before I can even realize that I have checked who I am and who God is at the door. I forget that I'm a beloved child. I forget that I have a spirit of sonship. The ploy of pain is to make sure you forget who you are and to make your world small and meaningless. And I hate pain, and I I think it's wrong, I think it's evil, and I know that. But usually my reaction to pain is a lot more shallow. Here's what I mean. When, When I react to pain, and when I react to suffering and inconveniences, if I can push through something, whatever's right before me that day, if I can push through it and forge through it, I will look at it as an inconvenience and be angry about it, but I'll, but I'll be through it. It's metal with my plans, so I'm just going to push through it though. And if I can't forge through it, if I can't get through it, I'll be resigned to this meaningless and sadness too because of my lack of control and power. The ploy of pain is to make sure you resign yourself to something other than, Lord, you're writing a story in me. And yet that's the very reason why Paul wants us to zoom out and inject the eternal into the present when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing it with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if that's what Paul wants us to do, to zoom out, how does it, How do we do that? What does it look like? And that's the prescription to pain. This this next idea, the the prescription to pain. Here, Paul is being very intentional. You belong to God. You belong to God, and I want to give you a prescription as you are human, which means you will suffer. You'll feel pain, the pains. What do you do? What's your prescription? The proper medication is groaning. It's groaning. There's much in here, but verse 19 and on says this. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Because of sin in this world, because the world is not as it should be, everything is in creation is tweaked and thwarted with the Creator. While that's a theological truth, what we see live is in this passage is with creation. Paul takes the sample size of creation and says, even creation knows it's not as it should be. Things are not the way it should be. It's altered, it's tainted. And Paul is saying creation groans as someone in childbirth. Groaning. And here actually Paul is saying, here's a template for you, someone who has the spirit of God as a beloved child of God to take up. Here's a way, a paradigm to look at it. You should groan just like creation groans. You should. Each week we, we um, have these songs and these prayers and different things. And it's not, we don't choose them because we like them, though we do. We actually have the text that will be preached shape everything else that we do in a service. So when we sing, so will I, so will I. If the mountains do this, so will I. If, if, if the rivers do this, so will I. If the stars and the sun and the moon do this, so will I. You didn't know it, but you took up the template Paul just gave the people in Romans 8 and to you and I. Creation groans, and therefore we should groan too. And here's what that groaning kind of looks like to grab some, some grappling points. It means that winter has come and is here and spring is blooming before our eyes. And he says it this way. C.S. Lewis says it in The God and the Dock. It's a longer one, but you can see on the screen. It says, The miracles that have already happened are, of course, as the scripture so often says, the first fruits of that cosmic summer, which is presently coming on. Christ has risen, and so we shall rise. Peter, for a few seconds, walked on water. And the day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of the glorified and obedient men, when we can do all things. When we shall be those gods that are described as being in Scripture. To be sure, it feels wintry enough still, as in it feels like winter right now. On this day, in May of 2023, it it still feels like winter, but... Often, in the very early spring, it feels like that. Even though it feels like winter, it actually is early spring. And he says, 2,000 years are only a day or two by this scale. A man really ought to say, the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday, the first flower of spring. Because we know what is coming behind the crocus. The spring comes slowly down this way. But the great thing is that the corner has been turned. There is, of course, this difference. That in the natural spring, the crocus cannot choose whether it will respond or not. We can. We have the power either of withstanding the spring and sinking back into a cosmic winter or of going on into those high midsummer pumps in which our leader, the Son of Man, already dwells 
and to which he is calling us. It remains with us to follow or not, to die in this winter or to go on into that spring and that summer. There's much there. What is he saying? He's saying nature understands. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. Nature understands the fact that the fall is here and yet spring is coming. And actually the first bits of spring are here. In fact, the crocus is blooming. The first flower of winter of spring is blooming and it's actually beginning to work backwards. The evil in this world actually is beginning to work backwards. The hardship and the pain and the rigor is actually being undone slowly and surely, even though it still feels like winter, spring is here. And C.S. Lewis and Paul are saying, if nature can do that, how much more the people who are called the beloved children of God, who have his spirit, then all of a sudden say, spring is coming. Jesus, I see all that you've done so that winter can be undone. And I see all that you're going to do as spring is springing. And because I'm holding the fact that you are thawing the snow and the ice and you're bringing green and beauty and blossoming, because of all those things, I groan because I'm headed towards that reality. That's what Paul's saying. To groan because you have pain. When you feel pain, when you feel suffering, what you should do is groan because it makes much of what will be. So what is, how do you groan? What does the street level, what does groaning look like? Groaning and complaining are very close things and yet all the different. One pastor said that complaining is the groaning, uh, complaining is the pornography of groaning. The complaining is the pornography of groaning. The complaining, you use it for yourself and it scratches an itch and, and you don't use it in a redemptive way or the long game, but you use your words for a quick moment and a quick thrill to make yourself feel better. And while it is a pressure valve, we see that groaning actually is the proper pressure valve. Because groaning says with the chorus of creation, things are not as they should be, comma, and we're moving towards wholeness. We're moving towards beauty. We're moving towards not fragmentation, but actually understanding and abundance. And the way that you groan, not complain, the way that you groan is say, I'm going to tap my story into God's story. And you can't tap your story into God's story until you articulate your scars. You can't groan unless you know what you're groaning about. So what are you groaning about? What in your life was not the way it was supposed to be? What resembles more winter than spring? More death and decay than life and beauty? What in your body? What in your mind, your emotions? What in the world around you or the world inside of you? You have to articulate the scars you have. I've got scars all over my hands. I've got, I burned myself on an iron, trying to iron my shirt, which I didn't, I just made more wrinkly. You have to articulate your scars. Seven years ago, I had needles pumped into my veins for chemotherapy. And now my veins are concrete, impenetrable. 
And then after that, for about a month, I laid on a table and lasers lined up on three dots, tattoos that I have right here to zap the rest of the cancer cells. Your body tells a story of the scars and the pain in which you should take up and groan and say, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Lord, do much with this. Bring spring to where there is winter. You're not too much for God in your groaning. Actually, he loves it when you groan because it makes much of his son and all that his son offers. And when you do that, actually, you take up this thought and this idea of first fruits. We could spend a whole month on this, but the first fruits is this idea that uh, agriculturally, it's the first part in the first installment of a harvest. And it says the rest, it defines the rest of the harvest. And here Paul is saying this in 23 and 24. He says, or 23, and not only the creation, but ourselves. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He's saying, because if, if all that Jesus did is the whole entire harvest, well, guess what? The first installment of the harvest is the Holy Spirit in you as his beloved. And that Holy Spirit will work in you and will change you. And actually, you'll begin to know and thirst and hunger for the fullness of the harvest. And here it's saying, because you are adopted, you can await for the full adoption of a son and a daughter of God. And therefore you groan. You groan. And to simply put it, the things that elicit your groaning will only know your voice for so long. Because the things that elicit your groaning in your life and your story and your scars will soon know the voice of Jesus in his grace and his powerful, justice-oriented glory. You groan not for eternity. You groan for a particular time because Jesus can hear you. And this is last idea. Patience and pain. Patience and pain. So we, we all groan. We're all, we all hurt. We all have pain. But we're marching towards a reality that is not yet. And that's a very good thing. Because if we said things aren't the way it's supposed to be and we weren't moving anywhere, we'd easily be resigned to hopelessness. And yet Paul says here in verse 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. The hope that the full harvest is coming as we have the first fruits, the first installment of it. In that hope, we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The very nature of hope is saying, I can't see the very thing I long for and even the thing I need most. And yet I know it's coming down the pike. And therefore, I will wait with patience. Because I don't have to write the story, God is. We wait for it even while we can't see it. And that's what hope is. That's what faith is. In the New Testament, there's a book called Hebrews. And in Hebrews, it's all about taking these paradigms and categories of the Old Testament and saying, Jesus is better than this and this. He fulfills this, this, this. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the hall of faith. And it begins this way. That chapter says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 
This is what the ancients were commended for. And then it goes on to list the ancients. Abel and Noah and Enoch and Sarah and Moses and Abraham and Hagar and, and all these people, Gideon. It says all these people hoped that God would do something and write the story even though they couldn't see it and know it. And the very end of the hall of faith clues you in and says, but you're different. Because you stand in a time of history where you can look back on Jesus and all that he's done and therefore look forward to what all he's going to do. And then the next chapter, right after it says that, it says this in Hebrews 12, the very beginning. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all the Old Testament characters, you are with Noah and you're with Abraham and with Hagar, uh, everybody. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All the Old Testament characters, they didn't know what they were marching toward, yet they knew God was writing the story. And faith for you is the very same, but even a little better, because actually you get to see the pain of the crucified, of Jesus for you. And because he's done something for you, and because he's taking you somewhere and up to something and writing a story, even amid your suffering, and zooming out, and reminding you, you don't live in the imminent frame. You live in a story God's writing for you. Because of that, your groaning fits into his groaning. Because Jesus groaned, you now can groan. Because in the Old Testament, in Psalm 22, David said, God, it feels like you've abandoned me. God, I feel alone. You're absent. In those very words, Jesus doesn't just employ them on the cross because they're fitting. He comes to say, this was written about me. I will know silence from my father so that you never will. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The Jesus that is bringing spring and thawing winter cried out to his heavenly father and heard nothing so that you amid your winter and amid spring coming can cry out to the heavenly father and he hears every single bit of it. The prescription is groaning, not because you complain or you are self-centered. You groan because you say, God, do much with the things that mark and mar me now. In my suffering, in my pain, in my doubt, in my fear, and all of these things, do much with it. My job is the Holy Spirit's job. That is to say, I'm here to tell you, just like the Holy Spirit is, look at Jesus. Hebrews 12, as you suffer these things and are marked and marred by the fall and are moving into spring, fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Look at Jesus, because when you do that, you're groaning has a place that knows peace and solace and hope. Let's pray.
Lord, may we look at our scars and articulate them and bounce our eyes immediately to the fact that you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you not hear my groaning? Because of your scars that you bore for us, may our scars fit into your story. Because of your groaning that did not go heard, may our groaning be heard by the one who says, you are my beloved, you are adopted. There's nothing that can change that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we live the uncondemned life, help us suffer well. Because spring is coming and the crocus is blooming. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. As we live the uncondemned life, help us suffer well. Because spring is coming and the crocus is blooming. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.